want to welcome you this morning to Wellspring. It's awesome to have you. My name is Tony. I have the pleasure and the privilege of being a part of our staff team here. I was thinking this week as we're going through Advent, I was remembering back to about two years ago, uh, two and a half years ago, I guess at this time, we did a church plant in this place. Who here was here when we first started that? A few of us. Do you remember what we were doing this last Advent two years ago? The heater had gone out. And we were literally passing out blankets. So just be grateful that we have a heater today. Uh, one thing to celebrate during Advent. Uh, we're in the midst of this season we call Advent, right? It's a season to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. Now in uh, January, we're going to start working our way through 1 Corinthians. And we're just going to sort of slowly work through most of next year through 1 Corinthians. Right now, we're finishing our series called Unforced Rhythms of Grace. Where we're leaning into what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus. This week, we're going to talk about worship. Next week is our, going to be our Christmas service. Uh, and then we're going to get into celebration and enemy love. And then we'll dive into 1 Corinthians. For now, this morning, I want to focus on what does it mean to worship? But if you are a kid and you want to hang out with other kids, Miss Trish is over there and she would love to hang out with you. Why don't you go join her? It's going to be epic. There's a lot of kids today. So we're going to lean in. What does it look like to practice the way of Jesus? And we're going to look specifically at this idea of worship. Now, one of the things we know from the gospel narratives is that Jesus has a high value for worship. And we know this specifically because Jesus gets tempted in the wilderness. And this is one of the temptations. It says this, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Right? So now imagine, Jesus is God who takes on human flesh, so he set aside all the power and influence he had, right? He's now a limited creature, much like we are. And in this moment where he has given up all of his power and influence, what does the devil do? He says, hey, guess what? I will give you all this power and influence. You can, like, instill justice in all the nations. You could help all these people. Like, you could do so much good. Right? He appeals actually to his best nature. Like, you could do awesome stuff. And then what does Jesus say to him? He says this, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Right? So Jesus has this opportunity to do all kinds of good in the world, and he says, No. He says, get away from me, Satan. Right? Hasatan is the adversary. Right? Get away from me. You're opposing God. And why does he say this? Not because the good work he could do, right? He's like, yeah, that's great. But what's more important, right? His heart's posture of worship in the midst of it. He's not willing to sacrifice his heart's posture of worship towards the Father in order to do good in the world. I think this is an important window into worship. I mean, imagine yourself, right? Right now. If Satan was going to come up to you and tempt you, what would he offer you? Right? Because this isn't some cool fable a long time ago. Right? This is how Satan works in the world, right? One of the ways he works is by tempting us, and not always towards bad things, 
but actually good things that are divorced from God and a heart of worship. What are the ways that Satan would tempt you today? The things that would help, that would push your heart away from God, but maybe towards other things. Promotions at work, family obligations. There's all kinds of good things in the world that can pull us away from God. What are those things for you? And if you were going to look in the mirror this morning, what are those things? One of the things that's fascinating is Jesus has this super high value for worship. And yet, in the New Testament, what do we see in the Gospels? The Father is actually having to look for worshipers. John 4, Jesus meets this woman at a well and he says to her, all these different things. Then he says this, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. People who will worship him in spirit and truth. But if you think about it, it's fascinating. Jesus says, basically, you can do all these good things, but your heart of worship is so important, and yet there is not like a line of people waiting to be worshipers. Even though Jesus says, man, this is maybe the most important thing. It's not like God is like a bouncer at a hip club and like, hey guys, you got to wait outside. You know, things are rocking in here. He's actually on the streets looking for worshipers. And one of the questions I thought about this week is, why? Like, if worship is so important, why is the Father having to look for worshipers? I thought about it a fair amount this week, and I was wondering, you know, what is it that gets in the way of me worshiping? Right? What's in the way that gets in the way of you worshiping? What are those things? In English, the word worship comes from worth-ship, right? So it's to ascribe worth to someone or something. The thing is, right, in the biblical narrative, what it says is that worship really should only go to God because God is the only one who really deserves the honor and glory and praise of our lives. Sometimes we think that worship is just singing songs, right? It's like, no, 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 it's actually not at all. Worship is our heart's posture to God, right, that elevates Him, that gives over control to Him for our lives and our life's direction. I learned this early on for me. So I was, when I was a kid, we used to go to Mass every so often. And we'd sing songs, and we'd kneel, and we'd stand. And one of the things I realized, though, later on, is that actually in that season, while I could have, I actually never worshipped God in the process. I remember the first time I actually worshipped God. I, I didn't really know anyone my age that was following Jesus as a kid. And the first person I met was uh, the defensive end on my football team on a recruiting trip in college. Uh, and he was super ripped, and he was like, hey, you want to go to a Bible study? And I was like, if it makes me as ripped as you, I'm in, you know? <laughs> so I went, and I kind of kept going back. And then I was invited to this like week-long summer thing where we'd study the gospel of Mark. And, you know, I, I really only went, I think, because my family was like, don't go. And I was like, I'm in, you know. <laughs> and so I went, and it was on the third day. We were in this cabin up at Lake Arrowhead in this little wooded sylvan area outside of L.A. And I was reading this text. This is the text I was reading. Uh, this is from uh, Luke. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me or for the gospel will save it. 
What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Kind of similar, actually, to Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, right? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is worship me. Here, it's like you could gain the whole world, and yet what would you fully gain? And I remember it sort of struck me. And I sort of awkwardly left the room and went out into the woods. And for the first time, I knew I worshiped God. In that moment, I said, God, I give it all to you. I give you my life. I give you my plans. I give you my dreams. God, you alone are worthy of my worship. And I came back in and I probably had like the forest floor in my hair. And like I was, you know, laying on the ground, weeping in the forest. Everyone was really gracious to me. I'm sure they're like, oh my gosh, he's got pine needles all in his head. But I remember the second time I worshiped was a couple hours later. We all gathered and we gathered to sing songs. And it was the first time I had sung a song that truly was worship of God. It was an older song and I remember it though, still this day is the song, Better is One Day in Your Courts Than a Thousand Elsewhere. And it was this moment where I verbally was declaring that I wanted to be in God's presence more than anything. And I would give every second of my life to him so that I could be with him. And that my life could sing of his goodness. And my first moment of worship was a letting go of control. My, second, my first one was letting go of control. My second was singing of God's praise. Those experiences, though, helped me to see that even though I had sung songs before, it wasn't always worship, right? And Jesus points to this in the Gospels. In Matthew, he says to the most religious people that are saying the right things and they're singing the right songs, he says this, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus wanted people to see, hey guys, it's possible to say the right words and sing the right songs, but not actually worship God. And during the Advent season, one of the coolest things is we get these awesome windows actually into worship. These moments that lead up to the birth of Jesus that are these profound windows into worship. Specifically, through the person of Mary. There's lots of them, but I, I like Mary's in particular. Right, so Mary's engaged to Joseph. And the way engagement and marriage works in the first century is you do like the written contract first. So you have like a deed kind of thing. Uh, our version of you go to the judge or whatever. Right, they have that. And then secondly, there's like the bride price. Uh, so this is the, the bride's family would pay, give money to the groom's family, right? So Joseph's family uh, got a little money in the bank account. All right, so those are the first steps that happen in engagement, right? And, but it's still at this point, Mary is still living with her family, right? And this happens for six to nine months, 12 months, something like that, right? So they've already paid the money, they've already signed the things, but they haven't moved in together, they haven't consummated their marriage. And it's into this context, when Mary's living at home, that an angel appears to her. This angel's name is Gabriel. And her first response is fear. Now, if you know anything about the scriptures, you know, like, this happens all the time, right? Because the most dangerous thing about worship is that God actually can show up. 
There's this great story in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's his kid's book by C.S. Lewis. And Susan is one of the children in the story. She asked Mr. Beaver, you know, like, about this lion. And it's like, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver looks at her and he's like, uh, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And what we see in this chapter of Luke is that the king is on the move. Right? He's trying to get Mary involved with what he is doing. Right? And Gabriel, Gabriel, who is God's messenger, sent in, Gabriel says this, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, to understand what the angel is saying, we have to sort of situate this a little bit contextually. 700 years before this moment, the people of Israel are sent into exile. Right? They're taken out of the promised land. They're sent into exile. A little bit after that, they actually come back to the promised land. But they're ruled on and off basically for the next 500 years. For 400 years, there has not been a scripture, a prophet, someone who was going to say something that would be recorded. Right? So the last one was Malachi. And that was 400 years before this moment with Mary. So the people of Israel have been waiting for 700 years for God to show up, to redeem them, to rescue them, to get these oppressors off of them. And what the angel Gabriel is saying is, I'm here now. The pivot point of salvation history has just arrived. Mary, what do you think? And she says this, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. That is worship. Romans 12.1 says this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual service of worship. My friends, you do not get more worshipful, more present, offer your body as a sacrifice to God than bearing the child of God, right? Literally offering her body to the plans and purposes of God. This is her first act of worship. But it continues. Right? Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. This is her cousin. She's pregnant with John the Baptist. And they have this little interchange. And then Mary bursts out in this song. She says this. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent away the rich empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever just as he promised our ancestors. Now, there's a ton going on in there. But I want to start with this. This is verse 46. This is the very first line. She says this, My soul glorifies 
the Lord. Now, this word glorify is really to magnify or to honor, and it's used a few other places in the New Testament. Specifically, it's honored or used in Matthew 23, 5. Jesus is railing against the Pharisees, and this is what he says. Everything they do is for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels of their garments long. Now, you might not see this in English, but in Greek, what he's saying is they magnify themselves. It's the same word in Greek. What they are trying to do is draw attention to themselves. They are worshiping themselves is what Jesus is saying. And what we see with here, with Mary, is that her prayer starts with, what do I want to do? I want to magnify and glorify God. And that is the essence of worship. And then verse 47, her joy is what found in the God who saves her. And then verses 49 to 55 are all about praising God for being holy, for his mercy, right? his might, his focus on the humble, his remembering of Israel, his promise, honoring his promise to Abraham. Notice that Mary's worship is not a res- sort of a list of her prayer requests. God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need this. God, I need this. And there's a place for that, totally. But that's not necessarily worship. Right? Worship is about saying, God, this is who you are and it's amazing. And God, this is what you've done in my life. Thank you. It's a magnifying, it's a lifting up of God and who he is. Now in the text, we also see this window into this guy named Gabriel, who's an angel. And when you look at over the whole arc of the New Testament and the Old, what you'll see is that angels are actually worship leaders. What do angels do? God invites them and they respond. Yes, God, whatever you want, I'll go. Two, angels also provide windows into what does it look like to be in the presence of God in a posture of worship. We see this in Luke 2. So what happens? An angel comes to visit shepherds working the night shift. Right? They're out in the fields. This angel's hanging out says, hey, I have come to declare good news of great joy. And then what happens? This is what the text says. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven. Right? The shepherds get a window, and what does it look like to be in the posture of God? What is a heart of worship? Glory to God. They're magnifying God. Mark Laberton, president of Fuller, says this. Worship is our response to the one who alone is worthy of it. And if you look throughout the Old and New Testaments, the same pattern of angels and their response in heaven is the same. Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4.8. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Revelation 19.6, hallelujah, for our Lord, all God Almighty reigns. Every time you see the angels in the presence of God, what are they doing? They're ascribing worth to God. They are magnifying, God, you are the center of all things. Right? Worship is our response to the one who alone is worthy of our worship. And yet, 
when we look at our lives and you look at the scriptures, that's not always what happens, is it? You have the Exodus, right? So God does this incredible work, frees all these slaves. They're like, yes, God, you're incredible, right? They see all these miracles. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's in the presence of God, and it takes 40 days for the Israelites to build a golden calf and start worshiping it. 40 days. It is so easy to start worshiping other things. remember in my early 30s, right? Pastors are supposed to like have their act together. And I realized like one of the things that happened in my early 30s is I started focusing more on doing things for God than my heart's posture of worship with God. The thing is, I didn't even realize this was happening. C.S. Lewis, this is another great quote. This is from uh, his book, um, The Screwtape Letters, right? This is a conversation between two demons. One is coaching the other. This is one line from him. He says this, It does not matter how small the sins are provided. The cumulative effect is to edge a man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Right? Our worship so easily gets off track. And often, right, the temptation is not showing us all the kingdoms of the world, but these slow, gradual things that shift our heart away from God and onto other things. Often good things. Right? I was doing good things. I didn't even realize how far my heart had drifted until I was super grumpy going to this staff retreat. And the thing is, even my grumpiness for the staff retreat didn't signal anything into me. Like, I had no sense of like, I probably shouldn't be grumpy going into this worship thing. But I was. Super grumpy. I'm sitting in this circle of people. I'm kind of bored. I don't really want to be there. And in this moment, God shows up in this crazy way. Everyone's sitting there singing songs, and I'm literally laying on the floor, uncontrollably weeping. And it was in this moment I realized, oh, I want to be with God. All this other stuff is meaningless if my longing in my heart doesn't actually want to be with Jesus, and I don't really, in the core of me, want to glorify Jesus with all that I do. And it was in that moment I realized, whoa, my heart has drifted so far. And I didn't even know it. It's one of the reasons at Wellspring we often talk about bounded set versus centered set. I mean, bounded set, if you're not familiar, bounded set is simply a way of saying, are you in or you're out, right? You're 13, you go to some youth rally, you got your ticket to heaven, you're good, you know, whatever that is. You do the right, you have the right theology, you you do the right stuff. You feel the right things in the right times, right? You're good, you're in. The problem with this sort of approach to spirituality is once you're in, it can very easily lead to stagnation. I'm in, I'm good, I'm golden. And I thought I, I, I felt like I was in. And I'm, I'm not saying like there isn't an in and out. There is. But I think a more helpful frame is what we call centered set. Centered set is more like this, right? 
Jesus and his kingdom, are they the center of your life? And are you moving closer to him? Is your heart and life aligning more and more with the person in the kingdom of Jesus? See, centered set tracks the wandering of our hearts. You could show up here every Sunday and be going off in that direction or that direction, right? Because Jesus says in Matthew 6, you can sing the right song and in vain worship him. And I guess the question before all of us today is, where are you in this process? Are you cultivating a heart of worship? Is your heart alive to Jesus, moving towards him? Is your heart and your life and all of your being, does it want to magnify the Lord? With Jesus and the temptation, are you saying, away from me, Satan, with all the things that are starting to pull and distract, telling you to go left and go right? And with Jesus, are you saying, God, I will worship you alone? Or do you come in this morning, maybe like me going into that staff retreat, totally unaware of the wanderings of your heart? God invites us to worship him. He invites us to say, yes, God, you are the greatest. May I align my heart and my life with you and your plan. Now, I was trying to think of like, so what does this look like? Right, so you come in this morning, maybe you're in an awesome place, maybe you're like, oh man, I wish I didn't come this morning, right? Like, you're feeling really convicted or you're feeling like guilty, whatever. I don't know what's going on inside of you. But I think the first thing all of us need to do when it comes to worship is be really willing to turn, right? So if you're talking about centered set, right? Oh, I'm recognizing, I'm going off, like, okay, I got to turn and reorient. In the scriptures, we call that repentance, I think so often we think of repentance as something we did when we first started to follow Jesus and we lose sight of repentance as the practice of constantly reorienting and recalibrating our heart so that we are ready to worship Jesus at all times. But this requires some maintenance. And so I ask you this morning as you come in, what are the things that Satan is tempting you away from God with? the people, the places, the things, what are the things that get in the way of you truly centering your life and worshiping Jesus? All right, C.S. Lewis, what are the, the soft, gradual, the playing cards examples that pull your heart away? We all have them. They can be good things. They can be work, they can be family, they can be parenting, they can be awesome books, great Netflix shows, whatever. They can be all kinds of good things. What are they? I think with that, that's sort of step one, a willingness to turn. I think step two is something like being open to God's invitation when you do turn. Right? We look at the person of Mary. God, whatever you say, okay, we'll do that. Right, this is Jesus. In the world. Hey, God, I'm going to worship you alone. Whatever that means, I'm going down that road. Are we open to worshiping God by responding with our lives, with our hearts, setting aside our plans, our dreams, and saying, God, I know you have better plans and dreams than I could ever imagine. I want what you want. Are we willing to do that? 
Are we willing to turn? Are we willing to be open to God's invitation to us? Because biblically, if you think about it, right, if you read through the Old Testament and the New, there's this focus on idolatry. But idolatry is not simply, you know, Jeannie and I have been watching season three of uh, Survivor. And uh, season three, because we canceled our cable or whatever, so we only, we checked, Jeannie found it at the free library on the corner. So we've been watching uh, season three, right? And they have this idol and they sort of carve it out of wood. But biblically, like, idolatry is not necessarily a wood carving. Idolatry is anything that we value more than God. Right? That's what idolatry is. And we can make idols out of anything. What are the things you're tempted to idolize more than God? What are the things you're tempted to worship? Now, from a habit formation side, what does this look like? Well, I think it can be a few things. Like, I think all of us, personally, should have a monthly practice of some sort of heart inventory that leads us to repentance. Just every month have a space, I don't care when it is, every fourth Friday, you know, whatever. Just say, all right, like God, I'm open. Reveal my heart to me. I know that I am tempted to worship all kinds of things. What am I putting before you? And then a secondary practice that's connected to that of saying, all right, God, I'm open to what you have for me in this next month. Even if it diverts me from whatever plan I had set aside. I think those are simple practices we can put in place. And on a daily basis, I think some of us need to work. And I think particularly guys, actually. Uh, I don't know if you're like me. I think sometimes as guys, we can get so focused on like learning information. Right? We, we can get like super right brain. Like very analytical sort of process. Yep, this is next. This is next. And you just sort of live in this information-driven, task-driven posture. And I know this about myself. So one of the things I do on almost a daily basis uh, is play music. Because music gets me out of my right brain and puts me into my left brain. And it's actually one of the few places where men, I think, in our culture have permission to emote. It's one of the few places where men can like feel things and it'd be okay. And what I do is on a regular basis, almost every day, I will take time just to worship God through music because music sort of bypasses my analytical side and allows me to connect with God in an emotional way. And I don't know what that is for you. I think all of us have ways of doing this. And if you don't play music, you're like, I don't play music. Awesome. That's why the church for the thousands of years has played music on Sunday mornings. Because it is a way for us to bypass the analytical and be present to God in a way that's often hard for us to do without it. And this morning, actually, I'm going to give us a chance to actually apply some of this. When you came in, you should have been given like a little piece of paper. If you weren't, um, someone can rally and run it to you. Um, let me know if you weren't, maybe raise your hand if you weren't, and okay, we've got a couple people. Leslie, I think Leslie's going to grab some. Don't stress if you didn't get it. You're like, oh no, I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss the deadline. No, you're good. Um, what I'm going to have you do, so we're going to celebrate communion, but before we do communion, I'm going to give you a little space to on one side, Write a prayer of confession to God. God, these are the things I'm tempted by right now. Help me. 
right? Because worship starts with turning. Worship doesn't start with showing up on Sunday morning. It starts with our hearts turning to him, and often that starts with confession and repentance. So whatever you feel tempted by, whatever the ways you feel like your heart is being pulled, write that down and say, God, unless there's one more up here, up front. What are the ways that you are tempted or pulled away from God's presence? What are the things you are tempted to worship other than God? I'm just going to give you a minute just to sort of think about some of those things. Maybe write them down. And you don't have to be finished, but I'm going to tell you the next step. The next step is just to write on the back side, flip it over when you're ready, and just write some sort of prayer of openness. God, like, I want to follow you. God, I'm open to what you have. Right? Because worship is not just about saying, gosh, man, I'm tempted by these other things. But then it's also saying to Jesus, God, I'm open to what you have for me. I want to live a life of open hands, of worship. And then before communion, I'm going to invite you up and I'm going to ask you to put them in these baskets by the cross as a way of saying, Jesus, I lay my prayers at your feet before you receive communion. I'm going to invite the band up and the worship team up. I'm just going to give you a little space. Just feel free to just be, be with Jesus in this moment. And then I'm going to lead us into communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he was hanging out with his friends and he took some bread and he broke it and gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took some wine and he gave thanks for it and he said, this is my blood shed for you. It's a sign of the new covenant and the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And he asked us to do this so that we could 
on a regular basis, remember that he is the center of our spiritual lives. That he alone is worthy of worship. That he alone is the wellspring of grace in our lives. And every time we come back and celebrate communion, we declare our allegiance to him. I just want to invite those who are serving communion to come up and I'm going to pray for us. But I would, invite, I would just invite you, don't feel like a rush that you need to rush up to communion. Feel free to write your prayers and put them up here as you're ready. And what we're going to do is you're going to come up through the center aisle or if you're over there, you can just kind of, someone will be serving communion there. There'll be people in the back that are willing to pray for you if you want to be prayed for. We're not trying to rush through this. We're trying to just be in the presence of Jesus and center our hearts and lives on him. As you come up, lay your papers in these baskets. Lord Jesus, you are good. You are holy. You are the all-merciful redeemer who welcomes us into your presence. God, we ask that you would show up this morning, that you would awaken our hearts to your presence, God, to your kingdom, that we might long just to sing to your glory. God, through this process of communion, we just say, we are yours. And if you're not sure about Jesus and you want to receive communion, you can come up and whoever's serving communion will just say a blessing over you. Just honor the process of your faith. Come Holy Spirit as we worship you. Reveal yourself to us.